0: Very warm welcome to the Rab Mountain People Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Cave. Here's a taste of what's ahead.
1: The aim was to climb all uh, 82 4,000 meter peaks uh, of the Alps and try to do that uh, uh, with the smallest possible carbon footprint. So, without using cars, without using cable cars, do the whole journey on bike or by foot. I do think after my journey that, I, that I've seen that the, the problem is even bigger than we actually thought and also in the work as a guide, so I do think as a guiding community and outdoor community that we have to uh, think about the future, what we can do, how we can
0: change. In this episode I chat with Roland van Oss, a Dutch mountain guide based in Chamonix, France. I want to know all about Roland's epic alpine odyssey this summer where he climbed all the 4,000 metre peaks and cycled in between them. Just as a bike ride from the Benina area in Switzerland, right along and down to Monteviso in southern France, that's a big deal in itself. But climbing as well? Phew! Just to be clear, that's 82 4,000 metre peaks in one summer. Actually, in just over 10 weeks. Let's be honest, most folks are happy to climb a 4,000 metre peak or two and retire for a cold beer. So how do you prepare for something like this, the physical training and the logistical planning? And how could a mere mortal, if they desired, tackle a couple of 4,000-meter peaks in the same style? Which ones would Roland recommend? I also asked Roland what motivates him. What was his mission? Hey, Roland, really great to see you. Thanks for joining us. How are you?
1: Uh, Very well, thank you very much.
0: And where are you right now?
1: And now, a Chamonix, France.
0: Is is Chamonix your home?
1: Sort of my home. Uh, I'm like uh, two thirds of the year uh, I spend in Chamonix for work, and one third of the year uh, I'm uh, I'm uh, with my parents a lot. Uh, they're Dutch. Uh, they're uh, quite old, so I spend some time with them.
0: Is that back in Holland?
1: Yeah, yeah, sorry, that's there, yeah, back in Holland. Okay,
0: you know what? It's really interesting that we, there are so many keen alpinists. Of course, you're a mountain guide. Um, How how many Dutch mountain guides are there?
1: Uh, Well, there are only 10 Dutch mountain guides. And from the 10, I think there are only five or six working full-time as a mountain guide.
0: Okay, but I believe that the Dutch Alpine Club, I mean, it has so many members. Is that right?
1: Yes, I think I'm not sure, but I think they have about sixty-five thousand members.
0: Yeah, so I mean, potentially you've got quite a few clients there, haven't you? If you want.
1: Yes. Yeah. Quite a lot.
0: <laughs> but you know what? I mean, people. I mean, I. You know, people must think, how can the Dutch be, you know, into the mountains? I mean, it's such a flat place. Um, but maybe it's the flatness of your homeland that drives you to the mountains.
1: Yeah, I think so. I think that's one. And I think the Dutch, uh, they always travel and they always want to see new things. Uh, and I think because of that, they they also get to the Alps and the mountains.
0: Yeah, I mean, we, we you know, bump into so many uh, Dutch Alpinists over the years. There's a place in Britain uh, on the East Coast, not far from Holland, across the sea, uh, Hull. It's a city of Hull. It's really flat. And it's really interesting that yes. there are loads of Famous climbers that have come from there um, over the years, and uh, including Andy Kirkpatrick. And he always jokes about it that it's just so flat there that people are desperate to, you know, uh, get into the mountains.
1: Yes. Yeah.
0: So why why did you become a mountain guide? What was the motivation?
1: Um, The motivation was mostly when I uh, when I um, uh, when I finished my study, becoming a sport teacher. Uh, I wanted to do something else and just teach in a, in a how do you call that, a gym indoors. Um, so after that, I became a ski instructor. And uh, teaching outdoors felt so great, so amazing. Uh, there were people, they really wanted me to teach them instead of students who were like, oh, I don't want to have any uh, sports or anything else. Um, and uh, by that time, I was already uh, climbing quite a lot. Uh, so I thought it would be great to combine being a sport teacher, being a ski instructor, and being a climber. Uh, but that's about uh, 20 years ago. And at that time, there were only two mountain guides we had, or two Dutch mountain guides. Uh, so I thought it was too, uh, uh, too uh, difficult to actually get there. Uh, so I kept on working a couple more years as a ski instructor. I kept on climbing a bit more until I joined a course for the Dutch Alpine Club for uh, talented climbers. And they said to me, hey, uh, why did you become a guide? And they, they showed me a little bit uh, where to go, what to train, what to do. And then in the years after, I continued my training. Uh, and then I became a mountain guide.
0: OK, excellent. Yeah. And uh, the rest is history, as they say. And I mean, I, I, you know, we, we want to talk about this, uh, this special project that you were involved in uh, this summer. Yes. Um, tell us a little bit about, as briefly as you can, what the project, what was the aim of the summer of 2022?
1: The aim was to climb all uh, all uh, eighty two 4,000 meter peaks uh, of the Alps. Uh, and try to do that uh, uh, with a, a smallest possible carbon footprint. So without using cars, without using cable cars, uh, uh, do, uh, do the whole journey on bike or by foot.
0: Okay, so quite an ambitious plan. Was it something that you've been thinking of for quite a while?
1: Uh, no, actually, I've been thinking about climbing all the peaks, all the 4,000 meter peaks so I I started start thinking about that about four or five years ago, um, but it was only uh, when was it like a year ago that I thought it would be so much nicer to do it uh, to do it by foot and by bike.
0: Okay. Yeah. And how many of the peaks had you climbed before of those? Uh, the total number.
1: I'm not sure, but I think about uh, about 50, 55.
0: Okay. Yeah, so lots of ones you haven't climbed. Yeah. Yes. Yeah,
1: and and uh, uh, the um, uh, the well, how do you call that? A problem was that uh, the um, um, uh, from the fifty-five mountains, uh, quite a lot of them were the basic four thousand meter peaks, like the easy ones. And the technical ones, like the girass, like the Diablo Ridge, they were still in those 30 that I still had to do.
0: Right. Okay. Interesting. And uh, yeah, so I I mean, what about the preparation for that? Was it the case that, look, I'm a mountain guide. I'm actually just quite fit because of all the work I do. Or did you have to sort of do something extra to, to get into, you know, the best physical shape? For the project,
1: yeah. So I had a um, I had a big uh, training program from um, what's his name, uh, um, uh, Steve House, who he has this has, he has this uh, this training program. So I ha- I already had a training program from him. Um, it was like a 24 week training program uh, to get stronger to climb big mountains. Um, so that was actually the preparation that I did. Uh, between the work
0: okay yeah so you yeah I mean the combination of that and the work uh, and of course being at altitude quite a lot what about the logistic preparation sort of trying to work out how am I going to go from here to there and who am I going to climb with
1: Uh, well that was a very interesting story Uh, what uh, what I did I tried to find climbing partners who wanted to join me uh, and I found uh, around five climbing partners who were willing to join me for bigger blocks between one and two weeks. And beside that, I had a group of 20, 25 climbers who were a bit more flexible, who, who, who I could climb with uh, filling up the gaps. Um, and then I had stashed some gear. So I had stashed some gear in Visp and I had stashed some gear in Chamonix. Uh, and that was the basic preparation I did.
0: Okay. And I mean, of course, this project wasn't just about climbing the mountains. It was like how you climb them, making a bit of a statement and tell us a little bit about that, the sort of personal motivation, uh, of, of this project and maybe linking to some of the changes that you've seen in the mountains over the, you know, the time that you've been a guide.
1: Well, uh, one of the reasons why I wanted to try to, uh, to create a different project was that, uh, w- when I was at the big, uh, big peaks, um, uh, I was on the, I was on the eighth highest peak in the world, Manaslu, um, and some other peaks in that area. And what you see there is a quite a lot of people who climb these high peaks. They all want to be the, the, the best or the fastest or the first. Um, and I thought if I tried to climb all the 4,000 meter peaks of the Alps, it would be nice to do something bigger instead of being the climb about me. Um, and in the last four, five, six years, uh, during my work as a mountain mm-hmm. guide, I've seen uh, the Alps change. I've seen the glaciers deteriorate, uh, rocks are crumbling, and seasons are changing. And, I th- and that's why I thought it would be great to combine these things.
0: Yeah. yeah. Yeah, very, very admirable. And of course, I know that when you, quite early on in this season, which was, I mean, I don't know, it seemed like one of the hottest summers that we've had in Europe. So, I mean, quite an extraordinary coincidence or whatever that you were doing this project at this time. And of course, there was the incident on Marmalada. I mean, had you already started your project when there was the big accident on the Marmalada? Yeah, I think
1: the Marmalada was on the beginning of July. And I started end of May. Uh, so the first uh, two three weeks we did on skis, um, and then we went uh, went uh, without skis. Yeah, and and yeah, I think the exit was beginning of July, and by that time I just moved from uh, Zermatt to Chamonix to climb all the peaks around Chamonix.
0: Right. Okay. And I mean. Just for context, there might be people listening here who, who, you know, haven't been to the Alps before or haven't been for a while. But it, it was obviously a very, very hot summer. But it was also the winter before was a very dry winter. Is that right?
1: Yes. Yeah. So when we started, we could already see that uh, the standard snowpack that you have uh, in uh, May or beginning of June uh, is, was, um, uh, was quite thin already. Um, so yeah the winter was really dry so the snow base on the glacier was really thin so when we started end of May you could see all the crevasses already
0: yeah tell me a little bit Roland about the history of the 4,000 meter peaks why they're kind of special I mean it's quite a I mean for a lot of alpinists it's quite a big deal to try and do the first 4,000 meter peaks and, and and then so on and so forth but I believe the the first one. Was it the Dome de goutier that was climbed, which is a summit just below the summit of Mont Blanc?
1: To be honest, Andy, uh, I'm not sure. <laughs> I'm not sure which one was climbed first, so you have to help me on that. I,
0: I, there was an article which was brilliant talking about your adventure, and they mention it in there. I would not have known that it was It's 1784 was the was the, the, the first Wait. recorded one uh, on the Dome de goutier And then the last one, to be climbed, according to this list, was uh, the the Grand Pillar de, de Angle, you know, uh, divine providence okay. and things like that, and, yeah. by, and that was by um, uh, Tony Gobbi and Walter Bernati. But um, tell us a little bit. I mean, there's there's been the 4,000 meter peaks. I know people want to do them all, but there's also been kind of speed records on them and things like that. You weren't you weren't really interested in in your project in setting any speeds or anything like that as i understand it no Uh,
1: no that's true because i think if you if you want to do a speed record on something like this where you always have uh different conditions different weather uh i think it's a bit of a strange thing to do for me personally um because if you if you really want to do a, a like a competition who is the fastest then i think it would be the best if you have uh, if you have uh, the same circumstances, the same conditions, the same weather. and of course that is really uh, difficult. Uh, and the other thing is that um, the three people who only did this before me, they were really fast people. Uh, they're really uh, or, you know how do you call that? They're big climbers, big alpinists. Um, so when I started, I uh, you know I, um, uh, when I started, uh, f- uh, for me the emphasis was purely about the climate uh and i thought if i can just finish it that would be great but if i if it would take me uh if it take me 50 days or 100 days for me that would be the same
0: yeah and what i mean i was just thinking about the cycling as well between the different areas i mean was that did that feel relatively okay compared to the climbing up or was that still quite difficult because you were carrying pulling a lot of your equipment a little trailer
1: yeah the first bit i i pulled my trailer uh and after a bit of time after the the first two blocks uh bernina uh, uh, valet and bernie zobeland uh i could always put my trailer in the car of my climbing partner who joined me so that made a little bit easier um, when I started the project, I was a bit worried about the biking because it was quite a lot. Uh, there's some big calls, big vertical uh, uh, vertical bits you have to do. But after about six weeks, uh, seven weeks, the biking became uh, better, uh, easier. Uh, and I found actually that uh, biking was quite peaceful instead of getting up at two o'clock in the hard and having crevasses and rockfall. So the biking became more of a... Uh, of a day where I could relax and you know just bike uh, a little bit have a coke and have a stop Uh, So there was actually a big change in the project
0: and did you? Kind of do maybe on some days have busy days trying to do a few and then that would give you more of a rest Or how did that play out depending on the topography? I guess of the mountains
1: Yes, so when I started the planning I I was trying to do all the peaks uh, one, uh, one day after another But, of course, with the summer, how it all happened, you know, there were some days when the weather was bad. I needed a rest. Um, But there were some big days. So one of the bigger days was from the, what's it called, uh, mishabel Joch bivouac between the Alpebel and the Tash. From there, we got up early and we did the whole Tash Dome, Lenspitz, Naderhorn, Duryhorn, Hoberghorn, Stecknaderhorn. And then I walked all the way down to the valley and I walked all the way back up to my campsite in Tash. It was like a 24 hour day. It was a big day, yeah. Yeah. But it was good, you know, to get so many peaks done in one day. That's amazing.
0: Yeah. And I'm presuming you, 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 Pretty much all of the ascents, You're in a roped party climbing with someone else. Uh,
1: yeah, the only thing, the only I did three peaks on my own: uh, Matterhorn, Dome de Gute and Biannassey. That was only three I did on my, on my own. Uh, but quite a lot of the um, quite a lot of the climbs we did as a team, but without a rope, just to be faster.
0: And I would imagine that because of the extreme temperatures, where we know we were hearing reports. Um, in the news even, you know, um, even in the, the BBC back in Britain, you were reporting about the permafrost being damaged and, and these huge sort of rock collapses. So, I mean, was rockfall like one of the biggest challenges for you and the team?
1: Uh, no, no, actually not. That's the funny thing. I only had one big rockfall on the Grand Combat and for the rest it was actually okay. Um, I think the reason why I didn't have that much rockfall is because uh, what I did in the beginning of July, I uh, changed my route and I went to Chamonix first instead of finishing Valais and Bernese Oberland, um, because before I started, I already thought that Chamonix would be the uh, how do you call that a, a problem area or bottleneck of the whole of the whole uh, the whole thing, uh, because you see in Chamonix that when the snow goes and it gets warm, there's quite a lot of rockfall. Um, so I was actually in Chamonix and I climbed most of the peaks before it got too hot and before everything got shut down. And then I went back to Bernie Oberland and to Zermatt. And uh, if the temperature is really high in those areas, it's actually OK to climb there compared to Chamonix. So, yeah, so it, it, uh, it was actually OK in the end.
0: So you, you, no incidents or a few incidents with, did you have any incidents with like on the glaciers are you spending a lot of time on glaciers or, or was it quite no. in, incident free
1: yeah it was incident free it was crazy if you think about it, it it was all incident free yeah uh biking was incident free uh, no no uh, flat tires at all
0: yeah that's I mean that yeah, is crazy amazing. no flat tires on your bike either no no flat tires
1: for 1300 kilometers of biking
0: The gods were clearly on your side, yeah. I'd like to take you, pause a little bit, and we'll come back to the project because it's absolutely uh, fascinating. But you talked earlier just about, um, you know, you've worked on a lot of the big mountains in the Himalayas and and around the world as a guide as well. And some of the things that you saw on the big mountains, maybe, I don't know, whether it's the crowding or the commercialisation, did that make you think a little bit about, you know, where is all this going and, and our relationship with the mountains
1: um yes the the commercialization definitely um but the other thing besides the commercialization is also that there's still so much uh so much shit around everywhere so much rubbish so much poo and everything uh which i find really shocking actually you have these really uh big clients who pay quite a lot of money to climb these big big mountains in the himalayas but you still see a cigarette buds and you see tins and you see papers of Snickers and stuff like that. And that
0: I find really weird. Yeah. And I mean, I guess, you know, what, what can be done about that? Do you think is that, what would the first steps towards a solution would that be? Is it, I mean, whose responsibility is it? It's a mixture possibly.
1: Yes. It's probably a mixture because you, uh, these days you get so many guiding companies up, up on those big mountains uh, and for them, it's also uh, just uh, getting uh, groups of clients together. They pay so much money; they just want to have the work, um, but they don't. They don't really set uh, uh, example about how to deal with the mountain. And I think that has to change. But, but like you said, it's not just one solution.
0: Yeah, and obviously, your your project was 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 very special. It's a big deal, and and the way you did it, and presumably you it was important for you to while you were doing it to sort of share the message not 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 to try and just not just raising your profile but more like what you know about the concern for the environment and and climate change and how did that work did you have people were you communicating with people um who, who are not in the mountains with you separately on your journey as it were sharing your journey
1: yeah, so the plan was when I started, uh, I teamed up with, uh, with the Dutch uh, Alpine Club and they already saw that uh, this was a project which was so big for me uh, uh, that they said that they would deal with all the social media and they were trying to write articles and get more uh, stories about the environment and all stuff like that. So during my trip, I was just uh, posting a bit myself, but I, I also was posting to them. And they then wrote stories about it and et cetera, uh, background stories and all, all that things.
0: Great, and I mean, just panning back a little bit away from your project too, I'm just thinking about, you know, it's sort of um, what, what can we do in our daily life? Because I think nowadays, you know, most people agree, they can see the changes. I mean, you must have seen dramatic changes on the glaciers in the Alps in the time that you've been a guide. Um, yes. So you see it every day in your job and especially a season like last season. But it's, you know, as, as, as climbers and outdoor people, we do travel the world. And I know you've been open about that. And I've certainly done that, you know, traveling yeah. to these places and it, it puts us in a really kind of uh, an unusual, position, doesn't it? And it's, it's almost like, how can we? Yeah, what what can we do? And what advice can we pass on maybe to the clients that we guide? And then, you know, just people that are not even climbers at home, what what are the small things even that we can do to try and make a difference?
1: Well, I think uh, one of the biggest things we can uh, show to other people is that we, sh- uh, that we shouldn't point our fingers at, uh, at the people who live around us or do other crazy things, but to just start doing small things ourselves. And I think we, we do, we do uh, underestimate the small things that we can do ourselves. Uh, By instance, uh, changing our diet or washing at 30 degrees instead of 40 degrees or taking the bike a little bit more, small things like that. Um, And yes, uh, of course, uh, I think government can change bigger things, but uh, I think we can do small things as well. Uh, For the last two years, uh, I've been traveling between Chamonix and uh, my parents uh, uh, by train. And actually with the fuel prices, taking the train is actually cheaper and more relaxing and it's better for the environment. So I think these are small things that we can do. And I think uh, if we, if we share those things uh, I think we can all, we can all change a little bit.
0: And the impact of the trip um, on you yourself. So, you know, you, you had the, is there anything extra after seeing the changes in the mountains and doing this big trip that, Anything in addition to those things you've already said, like using the trains, I mean, even locally?
1: Um, yes, a bit. The problem is that I'm trying to do quite a lot already. So I've been uh, trying to get the train for bigger journeys. Uh, I become a vegetarian five years ago. Uh, so I've done quite a lot already. Um, uh, but I do think after my journey that, I, that I've seen that the, the problem is even bigger than we actually thought, and also in the work as a guide. Uh, because if you've seen that, I think from the beginning of August, uh, quite uh, quite some uh, quite some routes were, were closed down here in Chamonix. Uh, normal route on Mont Blanc, normal route on Matterhorn, but also uh, routes like the Cosmic Ridge, which are very famous guiding routes. And they're all closed down. So I do think as a guiding community and an outdoor community that we have to think. Uh, think about the future what we can do how we can change
0: i know there's been a a lot of push from the 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 outdoor clothing brands of you know recycling repairing this kind of thing of course when we travel to asia and we we, so india and pakistan the local people they're doing this all the time that's kind of they have to do it and uh, we i guess we've been a bit lazy but now there seems to be more of that making things last repairing them not just in the field because you have to like on an expedition but even when we're in the Alps or you know back in Europe, yeah?
1: Yes, but I think uh, what you also see is because the climate is changing in the Alps, people go somewhere else. So you see quite a lot of uh, tourists and guides uh, fly to Sweden and Norway. And it's always a bit of a discussion because, of course, for us guides, it's also the work we're doing. So we also want to earn money and, and take, take people skiing. But it's funny that uh, I get quite a lot of clients who actually have a problem with the snow quality we have now here in the Alps. uh, And they say, oh, we want to go to Japan for a week or we want to go to Sweden for a week. But of course, if you do that, uh, the impact on the climate is even bigger.
0: No, you're right. There there seems to be a lot of people, yeah, certainly skiers wanting to to ski in those areas and even Greenland. And interestingly, we, we had a meeting with our... British guides this, this week, uh, just a small group chatting about different things and uh, one of the guys, he's, he's based up in Greenland and he was talking about this phenomenon, I'd, I'd never heard of it, where you have these, they have a name and I can't remember the name, but the scientists have discovered these huge almost, not quite a river, it's like a combination between river and slush ice underneath yeah. uh, the glaciers in Greenland and these things are apparently hundreds of kilometres and they they're running underneath and um you know they're monitoring them uh but there's yeah i mean I'd, there's obviously some really interesting changes going on in the big glacial areas even you know so far north
1: yeah yeah i totally agree with that
0: i wanted to think about you know if a mere mortal somebody who's maybe not um you know a super technical climber but they're ambitious to do a four thousand meter peak and they wanted to, you know, they could be inspired by your journey. And so they wanted to do a 4,000 meter peak um, under their own steam. Um, which ones would you recommend? Uh, ones that are, um, you know, accessible maybe by using the the train and then cycling or something like that. Are there any that spring to mind? Yes.
1: Um, I think if you go to Zermatt or to Saas there's quite a lot of uh, 4,000 meter peaks that are relatively easy, but also a bit more difficult. But both of these towns, especially Zermatt, are very uh, have a very good uh, train connection. Uh, so you can you, you can you can go to Zermatt by train, walk a little bit, and take a little bit cable car, and then climb a 4,000 meter peak.
0: Great, great. And which which ones would be the starting ones there? The kind of you know not not straight onto the uh... The Matterhorn, maybe.
1: No, yeah. I think the, the most famous starting peak is called Breithorn. Uh, it's a relatively basic uh, basic peak. Uh, but besides uh, Zermatt, just before Zermatt, you have a mountain called uh, Alphubel, which is also not very difficult. And if you would go to Sasfe, uh which is also very easy to access by bus, you can do a couple over there uh, what is what are they called uh, um, Strahlhorn uh, alalinhorn, the vice of course um, and yeah the, the the public transport is really good in Switzerland, so it's really easy to do that or to do those peaks on public transport
0: it's probably worth after the summer we've had as well it's probably worth if they're not using a guide they're doing it under their own steam it's probably worth. Asking in the guide's office, isn't it, just to check on conditions?
1: Yes, yeah, because you you uh, you see these days that the conditions really change quickly. That's that's uh, that what we see also with the climate change. We get a certain certain uh, bits of really uh, big dump of snow, and then really long periods of of, uh, of uh, dry spells. So the conditions can really change.
0: Yeah, I was just trying to think that the last time we had a really uh, cold. Stormy summer, you know, where you could do some mixed climbs, some of the classic north faces in summertime. It must be a long time ago. I mean, in you know, I'm showing my age now, but uh, in it... I think it was 2015. Really was it? Okay, yeah, yeah. Yes. Okay, and probably early season, you were probably able to do some classic climbs.
1: Yes. Yeah. I th- I think that's that's also something with climate change, and that I think is something. Uh, we as a guiding community, has, uh, we, we have to explain that to our customers that I think uh, for 20 years ago, you could just come to Chamonix and do a certain route, do the normal route of the, of the Mont Blanc or, or something. But now these days, I think you have to really check what the conditions are, and maybe become maybe go in June or in September or even earlier or later. I think those things are changing a lot.
0: Yeah, good point because i know i don't know about dutch alpinists but certainly britons uh british alpinists certainly in the past we were a bit obsessed with you know gaston rebuffet's uh 100 <coughs> finest climbs in the mont blanc massif sometimes we used to joke that they were the 100 finest queues in the mont blanc massif because yes. everybody was trying to do the same routes but you know in there you've got the courts north face dwats north face uh, and of course in the 80s when i were there that we did them, you know, I did the North Face, of the Dwats and the eigerwand North Face, you know, in, in, in summertime in 86. But now, I mean, that would be exceptional to be able to do that sort of thing, wouldn't it?
1: Yes. Yeah. Yeah. What you see nowadays is that these routes are climbed in the spring or the autumn. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So that's, that's, uh, that's uh, quite a big change.
0: So that must, if you have guests that want to do that, that probably extends your season quite a lot, really. You don't get much rest after the ski season. You go straight into the, yeah. Yeah, but you also
1: see that it's really depending on the conditions because we have uh, we have seasons where these faces are climbable, but a lot of the a lot of the time they're just too bare or just too rocky.
0: Do you have sort of clients where basically they're almost on a hotline? You know, so you roll and you you message them when the certain route that they really want to do is in condition. Do you have that kind of no.
1: thing? No, no, I don't have that. No, no, no luckily not. No, no.
0: Okay, <laughs> I know it's a it's a bit of a journalist question, isn't it? Where they always say, "What's next?" Um, but do you, how does the future look for you? Are you going to be mainly based in the Alps? Do you have any more travels or any big projects or is it more like trying to earn some money after time out of guiding this summer?
1: That's the first thing I'm going to do, earn some money, get some work. Um, and I'm working, I've am working. i been working a lot over the last couple of years with students and trying to create their personal journey and try to get them stronger on a personal level. Uh, and we're trying to uh, get a bit more work in that area as well. So that's what I'm pursuing over the next year.
0: What? Yeah, that that sounds really interesting. If you don't mind me asking, I mean, what sort of yeah. students? Students of?
1: Um, so we started the project three years ago with a, with a what's it called? A school for sport teachers, where I studied as well. So I teamed up with one of the one of the teachers, and she's more uh, more of a. What is the name? A psychologist person. Um, so she takes more of that bit of the of the week, and I take more of the whole outdoor side of the week. Uh, and we take students into the outdoors and really talk to them and share and uh, uh, share our problems, etc., etc. And to create a better uh, a better person. Is that how you say it in English? I'm not sure. It's a bit hard to explain in English. Sorry.
0: Yeah. So is this this is this to help their performance in sport or it's more to help them as teachers themselves their students
1: to be honest it's more to help them as teachers but also as a as a person themselves Uh, so we found that uh, the students the dutch students there's quite a big uh, big um, uh, problem with them uh, mentally especially after covid
0: anxiety Uh, and things like that yeah
1: Exactly. Uh, yeah. So they have they have a they have a, they have a pressure to to succeed and pressure to to finish their study in only four years and stuff like that. And they have the whole pressure from Facebook and TikTok and all these things. Uh, and we see that there's quite a lot of problems with the students. And because of that, they have problems sometimes studying, but also problems being a teacher with their own will and their own way that yeah
0: yeah that sounds great and normal do you do do they are they encouraged to turn off the phone and and, and try and embrace this kind of just be in nature really and, and and uh hopefully that will do some healing
1: yes so we always take the phones at the at the first day and they get them back at day number five
0: ah, brilliant. <laughs> uh, and the
1: funny and the funny thing is that on the first day they're all stressed and they're like oh my phone is gone and on day five, they, they're like, oh, we don't really care about the phone anymore. This is so much nicer, just really talking to each other and being open with each other. So it's a real big, uh, big, uh, big, uh, big shift.
0: It's amazing, isn't it? We we got to the stage where we we need almost a, a process to help people to to be able to put the phone down. Yeah, you need to yes. talk. Yeah, sadly we do. Yeah. Extraordinary times. Well, that, that sounds great. Is that something that is done in winter and summer or is it just certain times of year?
1: Uh, we, do, we do both, winter and summer. So we have another two weeks lined up in January and then we just uh, walk in the snow with snowshoes sometimes. Wow,
0: fantastic. Yeah, great. Well, it's been absolutely brilliant to chat to you and thanks for uh, sharing your journey. Um, all the best for the winter ahead how, how are things shaping up how is, how, what sort of winter do you think we're in for are you are, are the mountain guys looking at the berries on the trees and making all kinds of predictions uh, no uh, no
1: uh, we, we had some snow like last week which everybody got really excited about uh, but the forecast for the next couple of weeks is that the temperature goes up to 20-21 degrees again so it's almost spring with, with no snow coming for the next couple of weeks. So we'll see. It's, it's just always a, always yeah, something we have to see. and yeah. yeah, it's
0: a funny time of year, isn't it? Well, yeah, you, take care. And thanks for chatting to us, Roland. All the best.
1: Thank you very much.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. I've been your host, Andy Cave, and you've been listening to the Rab Mountain People podcast. To keep up to date and to hear more interviews like this, don't forget to subscribe. We will be sharing lots of exciting adventures in Series 4 soon. Stay tuned.